clearly the great excitement about new research in the adjuvant setting with the potential to significantly lower morbidity and mortality of breast cancer has overshadowed developments in metastatic disease where even important advances have not been curative. But like the evolution of many agents in the adjuvant setting, including trastuzumab and the aromatase inhibitors, the first studies of these agents occur in patients with metastatic disease. I met with Dr. Joanne Blum, who's done a number of important trials in metastatic breast cancer to explore not only what's new in treatment options, but also how evolving choices are being integrated into the comprehensive biopsychosocial management plan for these patients. Dr. Blum began by commenting on the initial discussions that occur when metastatic breast cancer is diagnosed. I'm fully aware of the fact that everything I say is going to change everything for that patient and that nothing is the same again. And they may not hear much of what I say. I think that if you're straight with patients and you tell them what you know and what you don't know and that you tell them that you're going to quickly try to figure it out, so that they are not sitting there waiting a long period of time to find out what's going to happen to them. That's a big step forward. One of the most common therapies is the taxanes. Can you kind of go through what the three available taxanes are and sort of what the differences are? Currently, there are three taxanes that are approved. There's paclitaxel, which is a cremophore formulation of the active molecule, which is paclitaxel. What that means is... Paclitaxel is very insoluble. It's hard to get it to go into water. So to get it to go into water, you need to use a detergent. And the detergent that is used is called cremophore. This particular detergent, it's almost as if one's thinking about mixing oil and vinegar, for example. You know you have to shake them up to get them to go into solution, and the minute you let them sit, they separate. Well, if paclitaxel wasn't solubilized with something, it wouldn't get into the bloodstream. The problem with the agent that it's solubilized in, the detergent, is that that detergent can cause some allergic reactions, and it requires the patients to take steroid medication, high doses of steroids, which many people don't like because they cause weight gain and insomnia, trouble sleeping, and they can exacerbate diabetes and make it worse, make blood sugars go up elevated, can take non-diabetic people and raise their blood sugars. So that's the oldest drug that we have that was the first of the taxanes to be FDA-approved. The second taxane that was FDA-approved, and these were approved in the early 1990s. The second one was docetaxel or taxotere, and that was FDA-approved in around 95. And that drug also requires a detergent solubilization step, and it's a different one. But it, too, is associated with allergic reactions and a lot of fatigue and tearing and fluid retention and numbness and tingling. And when given over long periods of time, is relatively poorly tolerated. And I don't like to use that drug chronically. It also has a steep dose response curve, which means that you do better when you give that drug every three weeks at a higher dose than weekly, whereas paclitaxel or taxol does better when given weekly. The response rates are higher and patients do better. Their cancer is controlled better. The third taxane that's been FDA-approved is one called NAB-paclitaxel, and it goes by the trade name of Abraxane. And this drug, the NAB stands for nanoparticle albumin-bound. So this formulation doesn't require detergent solubilization to get it to go into the bloodstream. The active molecule is surrounded by a shell of a protein that's in patients' bodies and all of our bodies called albumin. And this allows this molecule to get into the bloodstream and presumably into the tumor. 
And this medication doesn't require premedication with steroids. So it has some advantages because of that. There probably will be other taxane-type drugs that will be approved down the road. There's another one that's been studied called ixabibolone. There are other ones out there that are being studied, and hopefully we'll have more of these agents. But these are the three currently available. There are still rare patients that can have severe hypersensitivity reactions, even leading to cardiovascular collapse, dropping of the blood pressure, and landing in the hospital. It's usually recover relatively quickly, but it has been described. In the randomized trials for where patients have had steroid premedication with paclitaxel, that risk is less than 1%. So it's very rare, but it does occur. What kind of side effects do these premedications have? The standard dosing for Decadron with paclitaxel is 20 milligrams, 12 hours, and 6 hours before receiving paclitaxel when it's given at the higher dose formulation, or 175 milligram per meter squared every three weeks. You don't need that before weekly therapy at a lower dose, but patients still require IV Decadron before that to prevent these allergic reactions. I usually use Decadron at 2 milligrams twice a day the day before docetaxel, although the original trials looked at it for longer, and the FDA packaging insert, I think, still indicates longer duration. It was originally five doses, and then it was dropped to less. But standard practice is typically just two doses currently. And what kind of problems or side effects do these steroids cause? Fluid retention and swelling elevated blood glucoses, trouble sleeping, feeling like you can't rest, fatigue that hits you later after the drug is out of your system, a pink hue to the skin. Some people feel really bad. They describe kind of bad feelings. The word that medically we use is dysphoria, the opposite of euphoria. When you're up, some people get up and they can clean their house and feel animated, and then some people feel bad. And it's hard to describe exactly how bad they feel, but they do. How long does it last? Some people can get a psychosis with steroids. It usually lasts about a day or so. Some people get manic with steroids. Hyper. Very hyper. And then a lot of people will describe a real weakness and fatigue afterwards. A lot of people will describe worsened hot flashes around the time of taking Decadron and night sweats. Hmm. Like menopausal kind of hot Mm -hmm. flash? Very common. For people who are already having them, they can be worse. And that can really bother people. So not only are they insomniac from the steroids, but they're hot flashing. Very unpleasant. So it sounds like being able to avoid that is a significant advantage. It is an advantage. What about the infusion time for the Abraxin compared to the other taxes? It's shorter. It's 30 minutes. In the studies that we and others have done, and the FDA-approved duration of treatment is 30 minutes. How does that compare to the duration with the other two taxines? Well, it's three hours for the 175 per meter squared every three-week dosing of paclitaxel. It's an hour for the lower dose, and for docetaxel, it's about an hour. So it's shorter. What about the effects on the tumor comparing the three different taxing? What's your take on that? There are some subtle differences between these two drugs, the two forms of paclitaxel, and there's some subtle differences between docetaxel and paclitaxel. There's some differences in scheduling also that could make an impact. But if one looks at these drugs, at least docetaxel and paclitaxel, in the adjuvant setting to prevent breast cancer from coming back, there's probably no difference. What about other side effects that are seen with these taxanes, and how do they compare amongst them? I know one is neurotoxicity. 
Paclitaxel is notorious for causing long-duration numbness and tingling. And in diabetics, it's particularly worse. So in diabetics, it's often useful to avoid drugs that would do this because already these patients have numbness and tingling from their diabetes and you add another drug which specifically causes neurotoxicity and this can be really problematic for patients. In some patients, it never goes away. So in thinking about subsets of patients to try to avoid paclitaxel, that's one group to try to avoid it, in whom perhaps the NAB paclitaxel may be preferred. That drug is also associated with neurotoxicity, but it does seem to be shorter duration and goes away faster. At least that was the hint in the randomized trial where these could be compared head-to-head. The average duration was almost 80 days with paclitaxel versus about 22 days for the NAB paclitaxel. That was all comers for the highest grade of neurotoxicity. Docetaxel also can cause very persistent neurotoxicity and numbness and tingling, which can last for a year or longer and can be very bothersome to some patients. And we don't have good tools to predict other than the diabetics of who may be bothered by this. The other thing is there are very rare patients that can have devastating weakness, motor neuropathy associated with paclitaxel, can't walk. And fortunately, it doesn't happen very often. But when it happens, it can be devastating. It usually gets better. But I've had a few patients who've had long-term problems with neuropathy for years, most of that being sensory, numbness and tingling, not motor. Overall, when a patient asks you, what's the risk of having some kind of neuropathy or long-term problem with neuropathy from these three agents, how do you put it all together? I tell patients that they may have this long-term that most patients, it resolves with time, but how long it can take can be very variable from patient to patient. What about the difference between the three taxanes in terms of causing problems? Overall, how do you put it together? Well, I think that the NAB paclitaxel has a lower frequency of this compared with paclitaxel, but they all have a certain level of this, and it seems to be unique to this class of drugs in terms of the effects on neurons. What about other side effects from the taxanes, for example, nausea, vomiting, and hair loss? Nausea tends to be very minimal, but hair loss does occur. It's not always complete. Sometimes it's thinning, but it often goes to complete hair loss. How do you help patients cope with or deal with the fact that they now have spread of the tumor to another part of their body? Well, for most patients with metastatic breast cancer, this can be managed as a chronic disease, and the duration of this may be long. And that's particularly true for hormone-responsive breast cancer that's metastatic, or for patients in whom there's a long period of time before the original breast cancer and the recurrence. So there is a subset of patients who can go 10 or more years with their metastatic disease. And I've even had some longer than 10 years. And then there's the other extreme of patients with what we call the triple negative phenotype who can relapse and succumb to their cancer within a year or less. What's the triple negative mean? Hormone unresponsive and HER2 negative. So estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, and HER2 negative. And this group of patients is at a higher frequency in African-American individuals. It's been described in West Africans, and it's also been described more commonly in the African-American population, where there's less of what we call this luminal A or ER and PR-positive breast cancer, which behaves in a more indolent or slow fashion. 
So the biology of the disease is so variable that in telling a patient what's likely to happen to them, and none of us can read the future, is colored by the kind of breast cancer that that person has. So her to new positive breast cancer can behave differently and can be targeted differently. And hopefully with time, we will end up having targets for this so-called triple negative breast cancer, which is currently so lethal. But hopefully we'll have agents that are targeted, which will change the natural history of that disease, just as Herceptin has changed the natural history of her to new positive disease. And hormonal therapy has changed the natural history of hormone positive breast cancer. How do you see women coping with the diagnosis of metastatic cancer? And what have you observed in terms of what helps them to cope? Some of it is dependent on their psychological makeup. There was a paper that was published in JCO, and it had an editorial associated with it that said that patients' perceptions of their disease was entirely independent of their burden of disease, how much cancer they had, how bad the cancer was, completely independent of that. You and I would think intuitively if your cancer was worse, you'd feel worse about it. But no, that's not the case. It really depends on your personality structure, how you cope with adversity, what resources you have in your life to help you, your family, your friends, your faith, the three Fs, if you will. So I think that it varies so much that there are some people who become devastated and angry and miserable and can't find joy anymore. And it's just a terrible thing that's happened to them. And there are other people who remain cheerful in the face of adversity. And I think that's completely independent of their amount of disease. It's all personality. It's probably hardwired. It's probably the way we were born. It's probably the genes that our parents gave us, how we cope with bad things that happen to us. It doesn't have to be cancer. It could be the loss of a spouse or a terrible car accident or anything. People can make mountains out of molehills, and other people can make nothing out of terrible things. I think it comes down to personality structure and then social support networks. When you talk to a person in this situation, if you ask them what's happened in the past, have they had a family member pass away or have you dealt with adversity and how they reacted to that, predict what happens in this situation? I don't do that. But I think as you get to know people in the process of taking care of them and having a longitudinal relationship with them, you have a better understanding of what works for them. I think the most difficult patients for me are those that are really angry because they often will throw that anger in your face, and it interferes with your ability to help them. You can't break through it. You're surrounded by it. It hits you in waves. So I think doctors have to come up with, or maybe I need to come up with a good strategy for dealing with the really angry patient, or acknowledging to the patient, I see you're really angry. Can we talk about that? Or let's talk about that. Or would you like to talk about that? Or would you like to talk about that and take a medicine to help you deal with it? Because that can interfere with the person's ability to move on, to do what has to be done, and to make their peace with whatever has happened to them. What do you think is going on in the patient like that who is so angry? Well, I think they're depressed, usually. We always talk about the flip side of depression being anger. But I think those patients can benefit from support groups sometimes. I think they benefit from talking to people. They can benefit from talking to the physician, to the nurse, to the research nurse, to the whole medical care team, but also to perhaps other people, other therapists, and helping them work through that because they're wasting a lot of their precious time being angry, and it can interfere with their ability to do what has to be done or to say goodbye to who has to be said goodbye to. 
I don't know. I think everybody comes up with different strategies, and nobody knows how somebody else would feel. You can't put yourself completely in their shoes until bad things have happened to you, but you don't know how you would react if something terrible happened to you, but you can come up with better coping mechanisms than anger for patients. So they help them work through that. What do you see happening within families, within marriages in this situation? Well, most of the time people come together, but not always. I mean, there's sometimes when people disappear and get divorced, and sometimes people stay together for insurance purposes. I've had a few couples do that. I've had some couples who hate each other, and yet they stay together through this part of it. But I'd say that's the minority of families. Most of the time, people come together. I think the biggest problem is when there are young children involved, and you have other growing people who need a mother, and that mother's going to disappear and go, and there's a big ripple effect of all this. What advice do you give to patients with small children in terms of talking to them about this? Well, to be as honest as you think the child can absorb. The children are not stupid. They're seeing what happens. They're seeing the mother being ill or the father being ill, their hair going, upset in the family. They see what's happening, so they have to be prepared for what's going to happen and have to have something set up in place for them next. Another family member there to take care of them, or if they don't have a spouse, there's a grandparent or a sister or an uncle or an aunt or somebody who's going to fill in. And usually this happens along the way, that families come together. Do you usually discuss with women in this situation what the long-term outcome is and what to expect? I don't, because I think people have to come to you and ask you what's bothering them. Because I can't write the script. I can't tell people what's going to happen because I don't know what's going to happen. I can have a sense for the big picture, but I could be surprised, and we may have therapies that halt things. So it's best, I think, for patients to come to you and say, well, what can I expect? And then you can give them a scenario. But even then, you're going to be wrong most of the time. It's easier in predicting what's going to happen when someone is imminently in danger of dying, you know, in the last week or two before they die. But so many things can happen. And I've had patients who I thought they were going to die within weeks, put them on a new therapy, experimental or otherwise, and snatch them from the jaws of death and give them another year or more of great quality of life. All you need is one drug that does that. I'm just curious in terms of people's perspective on life how you see that changing once they're diagnosed with breast cancer or metastatic breast cancer. When people get a diagnosis of breast cancer up front, I think it shakes your sense of your mortality because no one knows what's going to happen. And you may have a very early stage breast cancer, but I've had very early stage breast cancer with T1A lesions who've popped back with metastatic disease. It can happen. So I think everyone who goes through a cancer experience is shaken in the sense of seeing their mortality. And then when cancer comes back, then it's between the eyeballs. So you have to deal with it. I try to be optimistic and upbeat until the very end. I mean, I don't want to withdraw hope from anybody prematurely. And there are some patients who insist on being treated unto death. I have a little problem with that. I find that difficult to deal with because I find that's not a good use of expensive drugs, you know, to be treating someone to the moment that they're going to die. I think that's a wrong thing to do for patients, but some patients will demand that. With breast cancer, we have so many different agents, you can keep going for a long period of time. But personally, I have trouble with that. I think sometimes you reach a point where you have to have the conversation with people that these drugs aren't working and the side effects are not helpful. 
and that we need to think of another way to help the person. But people come to that in different ways, and some people are not ready for that even until the moment before they're dead.